Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. The last five years of General Douglas MacArthur's life were full and productive, but they were also years marked by a period of gradual decline in his health. Until these final years, despite the stress and strain of decades of command, MacArthur had been remarkably healthy his entire life. As a young man, he'd been an athlete, and as a young army officer, he had remained very active. As a general, he was known as a great walker, a man who paced and paced many miles as he made important decisions. He was also a man completely opposed to seeing doctors. This extreme aversion to doctors intensified after the 1923 death of his older brother, Arthur MacArthur III, from appendicitis. However, after nearly eight decades of good health and keeping the doctors at bay, his luck eventually ran out. In January of 1960, he became seriously ill for the first time in his life. Still nursing his dislike of doctors, MacArthur refused to see a doctor. Shortly before his 80th birthday, his worried wife, Jean MacArthur, and his old aide, Courtney Whitney, contacted Lieutenant General Leonard D. Heaton, Surgeon General of the United States Army. General Heaton flew to New York City to convince MacArthur to get medical attention. Heaton prevailed, and on January 29th, MacArthur was admitted to Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. He was diagnosed with a kidney infection, which proved very difficult to treat. Eventually, after a long recovery, the general was able to return to his Waldorf apartment in April of 1960. At the time, he wrote that the illness left him feeling like a modern Lazarus, but he had escaped death many times before on a hundred battlefields. This time he saw as no different. Now it was time to finish his work. Over the next several years, MacArthur finished his autobiography, continued to serve as chairman of Sperry Rand, and acted as President Kennedy's special arbiter in an AAU and NCAA dispute. Those around him were impressed, but they expected nothing less. In his 80s, he was still driven by a sense of duty and a desire to serve. By 1964, however, it was clear to all that his health was once again in decline. On February 28, 1964, U.S. Army Surgeon General Heaton again arrived at MacArthur's penthouse. This time his mission was the same, to convince the ailing general to seek medical attention. He was quickly able to tell that MacArthur was in a great deal of pain, had lost weight, and was very jaundiced. Shocked by MacArthur's condition, Heaton later wrote, General MacArthur was a victim of medical self-neglect. It's just unfortunate that a man of his greatness, his knowledge, and capacities could be so utterly convinced that he should not seek any medical care whatsoever. Heaton told MacArthur that he needed to be flown immediately to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. MacArthur resisted, pointing out that it was in Washington, D.C. that Truman had treated him so badly. Nevertheless, Heaton, now joined by an insistent Mrs. MacArthur, convinced the general he had to go to Walter Reed. On the orders of President Lyndon Johnson, an Air Force plane flew MacArthur, his wife, and Courtney Whitney to Washington, D.C. on March 2, 1964. 
At Walter Reed, MacArthur was given a five-room suite. This would be his home and the home of Mrs. MacArthur and Courtney Whitney for the next six weeks. The general's son, Arthur MacArthur, joined the group for the final two weeks. Days after the general's arrival, General Heaton and Major General Thomas Whalen performed an operation to remove his gallbladder. After the surgery, MacArthur recovered enough to receive visitors. One of these visitors was President Johnson, who arrived wearing a Silver Star ribbon. More than two decades prior, the President, at the time serving as a Naval Lieutenant Commander in the Southwest Pacific area, had been awarded the medal by General MacArthur. The two men took a photograph together and talked a little bit about their World War II service. MacArthur also used the opportunity to dispense some advice, counseling the President to never commit American troops to Vietnam or anywhere else in mainland Asia. This was his last bit of policy advice. On March 23rd, he underwent emergency surgery to remove his spleen. As he recovered from the surgery, he developed a lung infection. He went under the knife for one more round of surgery on March 29th. Despite the best efforts of the medical professionals who attended him, the general's condition continued to deteriorate. In his capacity as Surgeon General, General Heaton had witnessed the final illness of many great Americans. He wrote that dying people were completely unmasked and showed their true personality and their true characteristics in their final days. MacArthur stood out amongst the rest in his memory, though, as a man who showed even more greatness during that period of time than he had ever seen the great general display in his distinguished career. He also found the dying general very warm, understanding, compassionate, and just profoundly grateful to the doctors and nurses working hard to make him comfortable. On April 3rd, General MacArthur slipped into a coma. At 2.39 p.m. on April 5, 1964, he died at Walter Reed. Prior to his own death, President John F. Kennedy had authorized a state funeral for MacArthur. On the general's death, President Johnson confirmed Kennedy's directive and ordered that General MacArthur be buried with all the honor a grateful nation can bestow on a departed hero. One hour later, Johnson ordered the United States flag at the White House lowered. He also released a statement to the press. Proclamation 3579 reads, With deep regret I announce the death of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, who died today at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. As one of the most distinguished soldiers in the history of the United States, General MacArthur dedicated his entire life to selfless service in the defense of freedom. He was a living embodiment of the code which he so eloquently expressed, duty, honor, country. Outstanding performance of duty and conspicuous leadership marked his career, which included service as Chief of Staff and Commander of the Rainbow Division in World War I, as Chief of Staff of the United States Army from 1930 to 1935, as Commander of the Forces which liberated the Philippines in World War II, as Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers in Japan, and as Commander of the United Nations Forces in Korea. We will forever be indebted to him for his integrity, his courage, and his brilliant accomplishments as a soldier and citizen. We will never forget that his ultimate goal was peace among men. As a mark of respect for the memory of General MacArthur, I hereby order that the flag of the United States shall be flown at half-staff in the District of Columbia and throughout the United States in its territories and possessions, upon all public buildings and grounds, at all military posts and naval stations, and on all naval vessels until after his funeral shall have taken place. 
I also direct that the flag shall be flown at half-staff for the same length of time at all United States embassies. Notified of MacArthur's death, Major General Philip C. Wheely, commander of the Military District of Washington, went to Walter Reed accompanied by John C. Metzler, superintendent of Arlington National Cemetery. Metzler brought a casket, a flag, and a hearse to the hospital, as well as one officer, one non-commissioned officer, three enlisted men from the 3rd Infantry, and armed forces police in two escort vehicles. Colonel Neil Robinson, the Army officer assigned as military aide to the next of kin, also arrived to assist the general's widow and son. By late afternoon, Mrs. MacArthur and Arthur, along with the official mourning party, were ready to leave Walter Reed. As Mrs. MacArthur entered the limousine behind the hearse, she asked General Heaton to send over a young woman standing in the gathered crowd outside Walter Reed. Lieutenant Bonnie Ritter, one of the nurses who had spent countless hours with the MacArthurs in the recovery rooms after each surgery, was called over. She and Mrs. MacArthur exchanged some words and an embrace, with Mrs. MacArthur thanking her for her dedicated care of the general. Once all farewells had been made, the hearse and the cars carrying MacArthur's wife, son, and other representatives began the drive to New York City. Years prior, when a state funeral had been authorized for MacArthur, it had been decided that MacArthur would lie in state at the 7th Regimental Armory in New York City, and then in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., before finally coming to his final resting place at the MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia. As the motorcade made its way towards New York, it was escorted at each stage by the state police of each state that it passed through, before finally arriving in New York City at 11.30 p.m. that evening. On April 7th, MacArthur's body lay in state in the 7th Regimental Armory in New York City. Mrs. MacArthur and Arthur arrived at the armory early in the morning and were welcomed by New York Governor Nelson A. Rockefeller, New York City Mayor Robert F. Wagner, and former New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey. Several diplomats were also in attendance. After a brief private service, the armory was open to the public. From 10 a.m. to 11.15 p.m., 35,000 people filed past the general's casket to pay their respects. The next day was a rainy day. A procession carried the general's body from the armory to Pennsylvania Station. A special honor guard of general and flag officers from all five services marched in the procession, which included veterans groups and highlighted the 42nd Rainbow Division and the 77th Infantry Division of the Army Reserve. The United States Military Academy Band and a battalion of cadets also participated in the procession. Once at the train station, the official party departed for Washington, D.C. As the train headed towards the capital, it slowed on several occasions in areas where large crowds had gathered alongside the tracks to pay their respects. On each of these occasions, Mrs. MacArthur made an appearance to thank the crowds for their tribute. The train also stopped in Trenton, New Jersey, to allow the governors of Delaware and New Jersey on board to pay their respects. Finally, just after 1 p.m., the train arrived at Union Station in Washington, D.C. The President and Mrs. Johnson, as well as Attorney General Robert Kennedy and his wife Ethel, were waiting on the platform to greet the train. Representing the late John F. Kennedy, one of the only presidents General MacArthur ever personally liked, the Kennedys boarded the train to offer condolences to Mrs. MacArthur and Arthur. President Johnson and his wife then followed, with the president eventually escorting Mrs. MacArthur out onto the platform. 
The official party soon left Union Station to begin another procession to the Capitol Rotunda. A military escort waited for the procession on Constitution Avenue. When the motorcade arrived at the intersection of Constitution Avenue and 16th Street, the general's casket was transferred to a caisson. At this point, more dignitaries joined the procession, including the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the Justices of the Supreme Court, the Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, Cabinet officials, the Senate and House Majority and Minority Leaders, State and Territorial Governors, and many, many more. An estimated 100,000 people turned out to witness the funeral procession to the Capitol Rotunda. Once the rotunda was opened to the public that afternoon, 20,000 people walked through to pay their respects to the general before midnight. Many waited for hours in a steady rain to gain access to the Capitol Rotunda. The next day, President Johnson arrived at the Capitol building to escort the general's body to what was then National Airport, Reagan National Airport today, for transfer by military aircraft to Norfolk, Virginia. A plane carrying Mrs. MacArthur and Arthur arrived at Norfolk Naval Air Station and was greeted by Major General Hugh M. Exton of the Continental Army Command Staff and a special honor guard of two flag or general officers of each service and a 56-piece Navy band. A second plane bearing the body of the general, the body bearers, and Courtney Whitney arrived moments later. After a 19-gun salute, the general's coffin was placed in a hearse. From Norfolk Naval Air Station, the official party made the trip to the MacArthur Memorial in downtown Norfolk. City leaders estimated that 150,000 people lined the route. Once in the downtown area, the party was accompanied by a military escort representing all the services and a company of West Point cadets. The riderless horse that was led in the procession was Blackjack, the horse who had just months earlier participated in the funeral of President John F. Kennedy. It was a powerful symbol and it moved many in the crowd to tears. The general's body was then placed in the rotunda of the MacArthur Memorial. Mrs. MacArthur and Arthur were greeted by the mayor of Norfolk, who placed a wreath in the rotunda. They spent some moments alone in the rotunda, and then it was open to the public. Between 6 p.m. on April 9th and 7 a.m. on April 11th, more than 60,000 people walked through the rotunda to pay their respects to the general. April 11th was the day of the funeral, and it also marked the 13th anniversary of General MacArthur's firing by President Truman during the Korean War. Truman did not attend the funeral, nor did Eisenhower, but both men, along with other dignitaries like President Charles de Gaulle of France, sent wreaths and official condolences. Among the 400 invited guests at the funeral stood a national and international crowd of dignitaries, including Robert F. Kennedy and Shigeru Yoshida, Prime Minister of Japan during the occupation after World War II. The eyes of the world were on Norfolk, Virginia. The funeral was held about a block away from the memorial at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. As the general's body was escorted from the memorial to the church, it passed a cordon of 80 flags lining the City Hall Avenue route to the church. The flags included those of the states and territories of the United States, the flag of the United Nations, the flag of the United States Military Academy, and the colors of the various military units that had MacArthur connections. As the case unpassed, the flags dropped in salute. Following a short interfaith service, the general's body was returned to the MacArthur Memorial, once again passing through the cordon of flags that lowered as the casket went by. 
In the rotunda of the MacArthur Memorial, there was a smaller private service. On what is today the site of the MacArthur Mall, a 19-gun salute was sounded. Taps was played in the MacArthur Memorial Rotunda, and Mrs. MacArthur was presented with a folded flag that had covered the general's casket. She presented this flag to city leaders for the museum, and today it remains on display in Gallery 8 of the MacArthur Memorial. With the ceremonies now over, Mrs. MacArthur and Arthur departed Norfolk for New York City. At sunset, the official period of state mourning ended with a 19-gun salute at Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia. According to William Manchester, one of MacArthur's biographers, it was a funeral that MacArthur would have gloried in. When told of President Kennedy's desire for him to have a state funeral with participation from West Point cadets, MacArthur reportedly smiled and said, By George, I'd like to see that. Overall, it had been an impressive tribute to a man who had dedicated more than five decades of his life to the service of his country. And if the list of foreign dignitaries at the funeral was any indication, the prestige and goodwill he had garnered for his nation during his career was also an impressive gift to his fellow citizens. The general was buried in his most faded khaki uniform, his matching five-star insignia, but no ribbons or other decorations. Years earlier, he had explained the importance of this worn uniform to photographer Carl Maidens. I suppose, in a way, this has become part of my soul. It is a symbol of my life. Whatever I've done that really matters, I've done wearing it. When the time comes, it will be in these that I journey forth. What greater honor could come to an American and a soldier? Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov. Oh, <laughs>